Hello everyone, it's June 19th, 2018. This week it's all about the little rubber that could. Opportunity. Let's hope it still can. There's a nasty dust storm on the red planet and Oppie's gonna wait it out. Let's talk about how that's even possible and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 163 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Connor. All right. So Ben's not here, but hey, welcome back, Connor. You've done this a couple times, right? Two or three times? Uh, yeah, I'm getting the, getting the dust off to, yeah. to come back from retirement. <laughs> yeah, you weren't even sure what time we started recording, but it all worked out. Yeah, so you're not much of a, as I like to call them, you're not much of a daywalker. You tend to stay up late. So is this really early for you, or is this about the normal time that you'd be up and about? Well, I had to break my sleep schedule over my knee over the past couple of weeks because uh, I would be going to sleep at like around this time and waking up at 9 p.m. And that's not conducive for normal human activity, as it turns out. So uh, I've been waking up recently like 6 in the morning, which is great because now I have a job starting tomorrow that requires me to be up at 6 in the morning. So I don't have to sleep at like two hours. So you would go to bed around now and wake up at 9 p.m. That's even worse than back when I used to work graveyard shifts. That's a crazy sleep schedule. That is exactly the inverse of what a human being is supposed to do. It turns out when you're unemployed and you have suddenly all the free time, uh, your sleep schedule goes to trash garbage. Trash garbage. Good use of redundancy there. I like that. All right. Hopefully you've had some coffee or whatever you drink. I don't know, Monster Red Bull, because we got a show to do. I'm ready to go. Okay. All right. So we will begin with uh, this week in spaceflight history. Now, this is an interesting one. So we have no winners, and there's a really good reason for that, which we'll which we'll get to in a bit. And really, Ben should be here to explain this because he's responsible for it, but uh, he's off getting a tour of a Blue Origin facility right now. I just saw Pick. Send your hate mail, too. He's having a grand old time, but I'm going to I'm gonna make this week's this week in spaceflight history work. All right, so it is June nineteenth, two thousand two. It is the landing of STS one eleven. So some highlights of this uh, this particular mission. Uh, this was really just a standard crew rotation mission, but um, it had a couple of interesting payloads, and one of them was uh, the mobile base system, and that's what allows Canadarm two to you know ride the railway car across the station's truss rod. So uh, that was one important thing, and that was installed by. Peggy Whitson, and uh, we might talk about her a little bit later as well. But yeah, just a standard crew rotation, uh, three astronauts up and three coming back down. Another interesting highlight was that this was the, and I did not know about this, I never thought about this distinction, that this was the last flight of a Kness astronaut, Kness being the French space agency. Since that time, the astronaut corps falls under the ESA, so they no longer maintain their own space agency. But uh, yeah, and so that last astronaut was actually Philippe Perrin. So the interesting thing is the landing of that particular space shuttle, which was Endeavour. What happened was there was a number of wave-offs due to bad weather at the Cape. The first scheduled landing, the one that they were supposed to make was supposed to be at 10.52 on, I guess it was still June 19th. It's really just a difference of a few hours. I have a little table here, which obviously listeners can't see, but I found it interesting. This really gives it a really good idea of the Space Shuttle's cross-range capability, because we actually go from landing at the Cape on orbit 2.15 and 2.16 to landing at Edwards Air Force Base on orbit 2.17 through 2.19. So they just switch from one side of the country to the other in, you know, just a few orbits. And obviously, you do track west, but still that seems like an awful big change in landing site in just a few orbits, which is the space of just a few hours. So it was initially supposed to land at 10.52 in the morning 
at the Cape, but that was waved off. So they tried for the following orbit on orbit 216, and that, and that was supposed to be at 12.27 p.m. at the Cape, and that also was waved off. So they tried for orbit 217, and at that point, it had to be at the Air Force Base, and uh, they did make that landing, which was at 1.58 p.m. And by the way, these times are all according to Eastern Standard Time. So had they not made that landing, they still would have had two more at Edwards Air Force Base at 3.33 p.m. and 5.10 p.m. You can see that there's a difference of about one hour and 30 minutes-ish between each landing opportunity, which is consistent with a full orbit. What's really interesting, and I never noticed this just because I never paid attention to it, the schedule, and I got this little table of the various landing times from a web page from way back before this thing even landed, so this was actually the previous day, I think. They had a list of the various landing times, and the one that did land was actually, like as I said, at 1.58, but specifically it was at 1.58 and 10 seconds in the afternoon. That was the predicted landing time. And as it turned out, the shuttle touched down at 1.58 and 45 seconds. So that's just a difference of 35 seconds. And that really astounded me because um, how can you make a prediction of a landing time within just so few seconds? I mean, I know that uh, NASA is amazing, but really, um, I found that quite astounding that you could dial it in that well. So they were off by 35 seconds on that touchdown. Well, the shuttle is a glider, so there's only so much energy in that system that could potentially be used. So that makes sort of sense that you know that at some point it's got to hit the Earth, uh, and I guess by accounting for the lift that it produces mm -hmm. and all the, the fun mock effects, you could probably get a good window of that time as well. I get all that, but it seems as though the Earth's weather would be sort of the wild card there, you know, like just little tiny variations. Or, I mean, we're talking about, I mean, again, just like 35 seconds. Yeah, I was, yeah, about 35 seconds of, of weather variation. <laughs> but it seems as though it would, it would be more that, you know, cumulatively it would be the weather and maybe someone did the deorbit burn, I don't know, one second later than they were supposed to, although I guess that wouldn't happen. Yeah, that would not happen. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty thorough. But it, it's, it's just, I, I mean, like when you compare this to the landing times of, say, you know, passenger aircraft, uh, this is astounding. I mean, this is this is about as on time as you get. This isn't like landing at LaGuardia. It's not fun. I can tell you that. <laughs> I've had to land at JFK once, but I don't think that was late, but it probably wasn't as on time as within 35 seconds. I don't think it was within a 35 second window. Pretty amazing. So the commander on this particular mission was Kenneth Cockrell. He kind of had a record of getting waved off. It's sort of like bad luck that follows him. So he committed five missions and on three of them, which includes this one, they actually had a wave off due to bad weather. He was waved off repeatedly on STS-80. And then on STS-98, same thing happened, uh, and it was two days of bad weather, and they had to land at Edwards Air Force Base. So I guess it's not surprising that on, on STS-111, same thing happens again. So it kind of became the rule rather than the exception for him. And is that where the, the clue comes in, because it's Groundhog's Day again? So that is where the clue comes in. Uh, so the little audio clip that we heard last week, which Ben posted, was from Groundhog Day. If you haven't seen Groundhog Day, watch Groundhog Day. Great movie with, with noted spaceman Bill Murray. Yes. Yeah. He's done a lot of movies. I don't think he's ever done any movie where he was in space. They're going to make me figure that out. Wasn't he in Space Jam? He was. Okay. I think he was. And I'm assuming Space Jam has something to do with space. I never saw it, actually. Um, It's not like an Apollo 13, if no. you're asking that. No, it was, a <laughs> it was like a cartoon. Yeah, so, so anyway, back to Groundhog Day. What does that have to do with this? Well, the thing is, uh, Ben gave 
the right clue, but for the wrong mission. So he was thinking of a different spaceflight event, which we might do in the future, so I won't say what that was. Um, but this was the clue for that, not this mission, which really has nothing to do with Groundhog Day. But we can sort of crowbar that in there, right? We can make it work. So since this is a landing that had to happen multiple or that had like multiple landing attempts, and if you've seen Groundhog Day, you know it's about a guy who has to live the same day like over and over again until he gets it right, you can kind of see the connection. It's not a good one, but... That's what we have. Some good retconning there, David. So it's no surprise that no one got the correct answer. There were a couple people who at least did get that it was a Groundhog Day clip. Uh, Niraj Sharma and I believe Valentin Frank. So uh, we got at least two people who at least recognized the clip. And, and I think that that deserves some points right there because it's a great movie. And uh, I applaud them for knowing that. Um, unfortunately, they didn't guess that it was STS-111 because it had nothing to do with STS-111. So that clue, maybe, perhaps we might use that again for a future This Week in Spaceflight History for the correct spaceflight event. That would be literally Groundhog's Day if we use the same clue over again. I Can like we just that. play this clip over? You've made a very good I, point. I come back once a year and bring good ideas. That's yeah. all I do. <laughs> yeah, that's a great idea. And uh, I have a clue for next week, and I think that this is a good one. I think we got the dates right. I checked. So the clue is uh, next week in 1961, a regrettable start. And because I'm feeling generous and because we kind of messed up last week's clue, I'm going to give a further hint. And I'll just say that the answer, what this is in reference to, it really is right there in the clue. Just uh, think of the words, a regrettable start. The answer is right there in the clue. And I'll explain what I mean by that next week. Um, so yeah, you can keep racking your brain on that one. Uh, but if you think you know what this is in reference to, listeners, just give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck. So the big news this week is Opportunity versus the Dust Storm, or a Dust Storm, uh, round two, apparently. So yeah, you did a great breakdown here. You have a lot of information for us about what is going on, what, what has happened, and what the future of Opportunity might be. But I think Oppie's going to make it. I think that's the consensus. Uh, but why don't you go ahead and tell us uh, what you figured out so far? All right, yeah. Um, I say round two in the notes because back in 2000. Eight or 2007, there was a, a the last global dust storm, which uh, sort of messed with opportunity, but uh, it got through the dust storm, obviously, because it's still running now. But on May 30th, MRO uh, located a dust storm that was about to uh, move down towards Endeavor Crater, where opportunity is, and alerted teams. Uh, and the dust storm at that point started to grow and grow and grow, to the point that uh, at the time of the JPL telecom, where most of this information is from, which was on the 13th, I believe. Yes, it was on last Wednesday. The dust storm was the thickest ever recorded, breaking a record set in 1971. Uh, and the way they measure this is through uh, a tau number, the Greek symbol tau, which is a measurement of atmospheric opacity. It went originally, like the, the low level before the dust storm hit, with 0 0.6. And then it went all the way up to 10.8. And actually, if you click that link, and we'll throw this in the show notes, they uh, NASA actually made a little diagram showing the different atmospheric opacities going from 1 on the left to 3, 5, 7, 9, and 11 on the right. And for those who can't see, uh, it's bad. <laughs> it's not great. But yeah, the atmospheric opacity uh, is towards the right end of this little diagram here. So you can barely see the sun. Uh, and since Opportunity is, of course, powered by the sun, that's not great. 
the nominal range for opportunities power generation is between 300 and 900 watt hours. It started at 900 watt hours at the beginning of the mission, but over time, due to degradation of the solar panels, uh, it's dropped to about 300, uh, depending on the season. And now, the last data that came out of opportunity was 22 watt hours, which is not great. <laughs> it's, I think that's like a couple D cell batteries. And at that point, they, uh, mission controllers in JPL were realizing that things were bad, so they decided to go into an emergency mode, which meant uh, no science happens, obviously. And the rover actually started to enter something called a low-power fault situation. And I'm just going to take a quick sidebar here. Ben wanted us to do a uh, whole uh, Spaceflight 101, remember those, on uh, how the Mars rovers deal with uh, faults and the fault protection systems, because they're really interesting, but we don't have that kind of time. So, just a quick word is uh, for uh, the Mars Exploration Rovers, a low power fault, which is what Opportunity entered, is when everything from the master clock shuts off, and it stays that way until the batteries reach a certain charge threshold. But if the atmospheric opacity, the tau numbers get worse, uh, and the master clock can't get enough power, a clock fault happens, and that's when uh, the rover has to just basically set alarm clocks for every few hours to wake up and check the amount of power the solar panels are receiving to figure out what time of day it is. And once it's a certain time of day, it's uh, like a, a pre-designated time of day, it tries to reestablish contact with the Earth to update its clock. There's a, a paper written by Tracy Nielsen, uh, who was the head of fault protection systems on Opportunity, Spirit, Curiosity, and I believe now one of the Europa landers. And her work is really cool because I'm convinced she's some sort of like computer wizard. Uh, and I think we'll link that paper for more information. So if the clock shuts down, the rover's still not completely turned off because, as you said, there's a little timer, so it'll check back, right, and, you know, see if the sun's up? Yeah, if the, the clock shuts off, it might still have enough power to run uh, some functions, but even if the clock shuts off and the rover completely shuts down for lack of power, once the power goes back to uh, above the clock fault level, the clock just starts over from zero. It's like a mission event timer. And so it has pre-designated like hour intervals where it wakes up uh, at what it thinks is like mission plus one hour and tries to remember what how time works, more or less. So that's a very good way of doing it. So basically, as long as it can get power, it will turn back on. It's not as though it loses power and then it's just, you know, like completely dead in the water. I mean, there is a big concern with the temperature that this thing has to endure because that could cause some permanent damage. So it's expected that the rover will hit a steady state temperature um, which will still be warm enough to keep it from freezing to death. It's designed to withstand negative 55 Celsius. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, but it's, it's nice to say very cold. Very cold. Negative 67 Fahrenheit. So negative 67 Fahrenheit, but um, the lowest predicted temperature is about negative 36 Celsius. Yeah, so it should be fine. And one cool thing about the opportunity, which I did not know, was that it has eight one-watt plutonium heat sources. So they really thought ahead. So I guess these are meant to sort of, you know, keep it warm during those very cold nights. Yeah, and it's actually, of all the times for a global dust storm to hit, it turns out that for Endeavor Crater, this is the best time because, as we remember with Spirit back in 2010, uh, it couldn't get enough solar uh, enough charge for its solar panels, and it froze to death. 
but that's because it was in the winter where it was whereas with opportunity it's entering the martian summer so the temperatures aren't going to be as harsh and the risk of freezing to death does not have as big of a threat on opportunity from what i understand the dust storms actually do raise the temperature i guess they just create a lot of friction it's more the, like the greenhouse effect because once the, oh okay that's the, right yeah the sunlight gets trapped it can't escape back out uh, under the cloud dust it also traps some very harmful radiation which i guess is not surprising since it's mars so that might be something that future colonists would have to deal with it's already bad enough to be in a dust storm but then on top of that you have higher levels of radiation just as a result of that they build character and maybe some extra limbs i don't know <laughs> so all predictions are that opportunity will most likely survive this how long has it been on mars now how many years is it uh, i've lost track up on 15 years i think 15, 14 or 15 years geez, yeah that's incredible i've i've kept my my because i I have a couple acquaintances who have been involved in the, the Mars exploration program, and I've kept my ear to the ground, and their whole consensus is that Opportunity has survived a lot of stuff, and this is not going to kill it. So mm-hmm. uh, they're pretty optimistic, even though they got a bit of a scare when the dust storm first started. So uh, this is something that is potentially to worry about in terms of recovery if they enter that clock fault like I was talking about, where it'd make it a little bit more difficult, but otherwise... It's going to keep going. Nothing's going to kill this rover. I don't remember all the things that have you know sort of gone wrong. Is this the one? Because I remember there was one of them that had a wheel that no longer functions correctly. Is that Opportunity? I know I know. Spirit just straight up got stuck, and Oppor- Opportunity and Curiosity's wheels are torn the hell up. Because it turns out you're not supposed to drive like 20 miles on a rover that's designed to go like 500 feet. Speaking of other rovers on Mars, as for Curiosity, because this dust storm is obviously global. Curiosity doesn't have as much to worry about because she has the radio isotope and electric generator to give her power, but it can get to the point where, according to last night's downlink of thumbnail photos, uh, Curiosity can't see Gale Crater anymore because the dust storm has grown thick uh, enough where she is. So science and navigation might be an issue, but other than that, Curiosity is still trying to get as much science done as, as they can. It looks like the dust storm might get even worse, though, because um, I'm looking at some really cool images that were taken. And, and this is from May 31st through June mm-hmm. 11th. And just by looking at that, the dust storm spread completely across the planet. So this is now like a planet-wide dust storm. From the image that I'm looking at by June 11th, you could sort of say that Curiosity was experiencing the storm front of the dust storm. At this point, I'm assuming that it's completely covered by it. So I think that the opacity has gone down or has gone up by quite a bit but you know that doesn't really affect curiosity since there's no solar power involved there Um, but it could still i guess muck up some instrumentation and just make observations very hard to do yeah it turns out on mars especially you really need to see where you're going and again and i've mentioned this like many times on the show it still astounds me i think i might have said this just a couple episodes ago it astounds me that you're on a planet with such a thin atmosphere and yet dust is such a big deal um it just doesn't make sense to me that the atmosphere, as thin as it is, could carry this much dust. I mean, it looks like the American West when you get those giant dust storms, which I've seen videos on YouTube of these things, and they're terrifying looking. That's what Oppie is going through right now, but on Mars, and with an atmosphere that is like one one-hundredth of what it is on Earth. How is that possible? Science. Yeah. That's all I got. <laughs> well, I, I guess it's very fine dust. And I know that there's some things having to do with the fact the atmosphere is mostly carbon dioxide. I know it has to do with like weird convection currents where the dirt, where the dust gets blown upwards like a, a regular like dust devil on Earth, and then everything goes but bigger 
Like, I don't, I, I barely know enough about Earth weather, so I don't know anything about other planets' weather. I guess it's just low gravity and... I'm, I'm, still, I'm still surprised that clouds can float, so anything else <laughs> is just beyond me. Sometimes they sink, and that's called fog. All right, time to do some short and sweet. Uh, first up, Peggy Whitson retires from NASA. On June 15th, Peggy Whitson announced her retirement from NASA, ending 32 years with the agency. Uh, Whitson is ending on a high note, however, taking with her multiple records, such as most spacewalks by a woman, totaling 60 hours and 21 minutes, as well as becoming the NASA astronaut with the most total days in space at 665 days. Whitson also broke the record for the longest single spaceflight by a woman, previously held by Samantha Cristoforetti. The list goes on during her time on the ground from 2009 to 2012, she served as Chief of the Astronaut Corps before going back into active duty with two more flights to the ISS. Uh, I didn't know how to write this, so hopefully this sounds good in the verbal way. The group stores early lunar lander photos uh, to prevent revealing to the world how advanced USA spy satellite technology was. NASA intentionally altered the photos from the lunar orbiter probes in the late 1960s to make them appear greatly low resolution. However, a group of NASA engineers in an abandoned McDonald's, and that's true, digitized the original tapes, and in doing so, it was revealed that the lunar orbiter photos were scaled up to 18 by 16 meters for engineers and astronauts to search for viable places to land. Uh, there's an article we're going to include with this, and it's really interesting. It shows how the JPL engineers actually went back and used the original equipment to re-digitize all the, the data that was sent from the orbiters. Yeah, this is a fascinating story that I didn't know anything about. And of course, to top it all off, uh, this was all done in an abandoned McDonald's. And so uh, the, uh, the name of the operation is McMoon, uh, which I think is great. It shows, like they, they talked about how they had to clean off, like or they had to clean up all the machines. And I was like, we did this in the kitchen sink in the McDonald's, and then we stored all the tapes for all of the photos in the walk-in fridge at the McDonald's. Yep. <laughs> Just like, oh God. I mean, that's a great way to repurpose a McDonald's for something, you know, that's actually interesting and and healthier. <laughs> and if you're not driving a car right now, I recommend, because this doesn't work well on an auditory format, uh, to go check these pictures out, because even the article says when they were converting them, the digital file for these photos are two gigabytes so it's a lot of really good data in there and they're really high resolution and really clean images yeah it sort of makes you rethink well just sort of your conception of photos taken during that time period because they were intentionally down which is a new term by the way that i just learned down yeah it's really cool to think though because those are film photos that are scanned and then transmitted over space and, you know, it's it's easy to think, you know, with the CCDs that we have on cameras that are in space now, it's really easy to transmit that. But they had to develop 70 millimeter film in space and then transmit that with a resolution that could be scaled up to 18 by 16 meters, which is like 40 by 54 feet or something ridiculous. It was some sort of lossless analog. It was flak. <laughs> it was an analog signal, which was not flak. It was 70 millimeter film with the negatives raster scanned with a five micron spot. Uh, which is 200 lines per millimeter resolution, and then beam back to Earth with lossless analog compression, which hadn't been patented by anyone so they could do whatever they wanted with it. Uh, and the tapes to record all this data uh, were magnetic, and they were the size of refrigerators and cost $300,000 in the 1960s. I don't know if that's 1960s money or not, but if it is, that's a lot of money today money. Yeah, well, either way, it's a lot of money. That's That's crazy. This short and sweet turned into a bit long, but all right. <laughs> all right. 
let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events because we have no questions, comments, or corrections this week. So, yeah, we got everything right. Next week, we'll surely change that. <laughs> Next week will be a different story, though. All right. Yeah, so just one upcoming spaceflight event, and that is uh, on June 22nd slash 23rd, I guess, depending on what region of the world you're in. That's the launch of an Electron with its business time once again. Uh, so, yeah, they were delayed, I believe. I Was this like a month ago or so? I don't remember. They were delayed. That's all I know. So they called it off. Oh, I got the delay. The launch window was originally slated for uh, 20th of April, nice, uh, to 3rd of May, but was moved uh, after motor controllers during a wet dress rehearsal were displaying unusual behavior. So I guess those issues are resolved now. It took a took a good, well, it took over a month, I guess, at this point. I mean, they also probably do a lot of, like, range stuff. I guess there were range issues down there in New Zealand. Um, so yeah, it's business time, launching from Launch Complex 1 on the Mahia Peninsula in New Zealand. This is launching two commercial CubeSats for Spire Global's weather and ship tracking constellation. Uh, and one small satellite for GeoOptics commercial remote sensing network. And these uh, payloads will be placed into orbit by the Curie upper stage. I can't wait to see this. Hopefully it will actually launch. And that launch time, or rather that launch window, is uh, 030 GMT, which I assume is also UTC, through 0430 GMT or UTC. So that's a huge you know, four-hour launch window. Uh, and again, that's on June 22nd slash 23rd. I know that can be a bit confusing, so you're just going to have to look it up. Um, it really just depends on where you are in the world. That's always the complication with things launching from way out in the Pacific is that it's, it's almost always a different day than from where you are. And it's weird. When the planet's round, some people are on one day and other people on the other day. Well, you know, in a weird way, that does kind of confuse me. Confuses a lot of flat earthers, too, it turns out. Anyways, let's think about something less depressing. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. So I guess that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks for co-hosting this week. Thanks for filling in for Ben since he couldn't make it. Well, he could. He was busy being special and VIP in places. And I expect to hear all about it when he comes back, although I know that I'm sure they made him sign some sort of an NDA and he's not going to be able to tell me anything. And that's going to be extra frustrating. Wouldn't know anything about NDAs being frustrating. Ben will be back next week. Connor will be in the chat room lurking as as per usual. Oh, hell no. I'll be done with my first week of work. I'll be asleep. Yeah, never mind. Alright, he won't even be here. He has, he has to go. Yeah, no, I go back into the hell void of school and work. And then I come back like next summer and then the cycle repeats. I get chained up in the dungeon of research hell. With that said, we'll deal with the show and cue the music, most of which is brought to you by Ronald Jenkins. Check him out at ronaldjenkins.com, and some of which is brought to you by Tim Dodd, the Everyday Astronaut. And if you like this episode, please review us on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you enjoyed our show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Thanks to our $5 and up Patreon supporters in the Ground Control chat room listening to the show live. You can connect with us on Twitter and Reddit at Orbital Podcast. You can send questions and comments to info at the theorbitalmechanics.com for more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. And that is all. So we will see you in one week on Orbit. Until then, later. See ya.